And welcome everybody to the inaugural Sub Zero podcast, uh, Sub Zero Coffee podcast. Today I'm joined by a very, very exciting guest. Um, he lives in Canberra, works for Owner Coffee. His name is Jordan Montgomery, and today we're going to be talking about communication in the specialty coffee industry. So, welcome, Jordan. Hello, how are you going? Oh, very good, mate. It's a pleasure to have you on. Pleasure to talk to you as always. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, before before we get started in the nitty gritty, I just sort of want to introduce, I'd like to introduce you to the listeners. So tell us a bit about yourself. You obviously work for Owner Coffee. What do you do there? Yeah, so I am the marketing manager for Owner Coffee. Um, I've been in that role, I'd say like three and a bit years, um, kind of with, you know, different names attached to it, but essentially doing the same thing. And prior to that, I was working still for Honor uh, in the shops. Um, So you got a couple of venues, so kind of working as a barista, uh, doing a lot of like floor stuff and then yeah gradually kind of moving into the office and doing more wholesale stuff so on and on with honor for about oh yeah 10 years maybe yep. a bit longer uh, with a couple of gaps in between lived overseas for a little while but um yeah so basically yeah marketing media just everything in that domain interesting and and interests outside of coffee what are they um well outside of coffee i mean i didn't really you know study coffee there's there's only so much training you can do yeah. I guess when you're working in a cafe. So uh, my studies were in philosophy uh, and literature. And so I have kind of stayed around lingering in that. And so I'm currently doing a master's of bioethics mm-hmm. uh, through Monash. So I'm doing that online. Um, aside from that, just like, yeah, avid reader, love to exercise, uh, travel a lot, travel as much as I can. Usually try to get overseas once or twice a year. And um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I wish I had a long list of hobbies, but um, between work, uni, and um, just trying to, you know, eat three meals a day. It's um, pretty busy. Could you explain to me what bioethics are? What what the course of bioethics is, and where are you doing uh, it? You're, it's at Monash, is it? Yeah, at Monash. So I'm an online student. So with everything that's happened recently uh, with the coronavirus, a lot of people have had to move to an online format. But I was already doing it, so quite used to it. Um, so bioethics is essentially ethics that's within uh, like medical practice and the medical industry. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, you know, um, you might have like an ethics board or something that will um, approve a new type of research or you kind of look at the way in which you conduct research and practice. And I don't know, it's just kind of ethics, but, you know, narrowed in on like medicine and medical practice. Well, it's probably a pretty pertinent time to be studying that because it is, of course, today is the 26th of April, the day of recording. And um, obviously COVID-19 has been running rampant throughout the world. Does Is there any sort of relevance between what you're studying and and you know, the geopolitical situation right now? Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's, I, I've, I've never been one that's kind of studied being like, oh yeah, I'll study A to get me into this, you know, career B or whatever. I've just kind of done it out of interest. But I think, you know, with um, zoonoses and pandemics and, and, and things like this, more more than ever, it's pertinent for us to look at the way in which we conduct ourselves. Like it's just day to day and how that translates into our, our health and safety. So yeah, I'm feeling pretty, you know, good about the future if I ever decide to pursue more of a bioethical career then yeah there's there's things to do well I think there's there's been a job created for you um yeah. out of all this as, as callous as that sounds but let's go back to the uh if if I could say the genesis of Jordan Montgomery's coffee career how did it start like day one where did it all mm. begin um oh day one well first gig was at a uh, coffee no it was at a, at a, a public pool I was working uh, there doing, you know, just serving hot chips and occasionally someone would want a cappuccino. 
Yeah. Uh, of course, you know, I was making by my standards now the worst coffee in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but then kind of, you know, got a bit of an interest from it was like, oh, this is quite fun. I can pour a bit of a blob. And uh, there was a, a, play, a coffee guru down the road. So I went and worked there for a while. Another cafe down the road, kind of cafe hop for a few years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I was, I think I was finishing high school. Um, yeah. So maybe like 17, 18 years old is when uh, just around the corner from my school was um, the first on a coffee shop. Uh, and that was, That's uh, pretty lucky. Time, yeah. So yeah, we, it was just this tiny shop, which is, um, has been passed on to new owners now, but yeah, so that original shop, it was, you know, Betty and Sasha actually in there serving me throughout school. And then by the time I kind of started working there, they opened the roastery in the second cafe. So I kind of started working in there and was there for the better part of, you know, four and a half years on weekends. So, uh, and I think Fridays as well, while I was still at uni. Yep. And yeah, so that's that's kind of how it started. I've I've grown with with Honor Coffee. I think I'm really lucky in that sense because I think a lot of people, you know, moving around between cities, between companies, you get different expressions. In some way, it may have made me, you know, narrow-minded. I've only got you know one particular view, but I feel as though I've had enough exposure to the, the coffee world at large to, I guess, learn a lot from from everyone else as well as growing within this company. Can you imagine? Can you imagine going to year twelve or to a lecture and on your way you just get I don't know a, a raspberry candy or, or like a CM washed espresso and the, the the lucky children of Australian National University, which is located next to your flagship store uh, for owner coffee the cupping room that would be a pretty, yeah. that would be awesome I, I wish i had that when i was at uni yeah well it's quite funny because i used to just go and smash like you know three or four macchiatos or something with a couple of friends and sit there we were all doing you know philosophy together at school so we'd sit there and just you know carry on and and, and be toss pots and and drink short blacks and, and macchiatos but you see people from as you mentioned like the cupping room is um, one of the one of the flagship stores certainly the most popular in Canberra and you get these students who are coming in and getting yeah, CM washed filters and getting these like, you know, incredible uh, espressos and just ordering up a reserve list in between classes. You're just like, Oh, just the, the caliber of coffee. I mean, globally has changed certainly in the past five or six years, but um, I mean, in the, in the bubble that I live in, it's just changed in ways that I couldn't have imagined. Yeah. It, it's nuts. And let's get into that. Actually, let's, obviously working for owner coffee and I think um, don't, I don't mean to make you blush on air here, Jordan, but they're very widely respected as one of the biggest innovators in coffee, in coffee roasting right now and, and, and coffee sourcing. What's it like walk, working in an organization that's for starters headed by people like Sasha Sersik, but also having talent among, among you like but Hugh Kelly and Matthew Lewin and, and probably one of the best roasters in the world, uh, Sam Cora you're in pretty special company there. What's it like working in an organization like that and you're continually pushing boundaries? It's interesting because I, I get asked this quite a lot by you know international friends and a, cu- a couple of interviews I've done in the past, you know, what, what's it like to work with these people? And, you know, th- that's kind of story I just described to me, I guess, growing up with the business. A lot of these people, you know, I've known like, you know, Sasha and Betty for, you know, I guess 11, 11 12 years or something. And, the same with Sam. I've kind of known him since he started on a um, Kelly. I remember he was actually a barista at at the Australian National University where I was, and so he used to work at like a coffee cart there, and that sold Honor, and that's kind of how he got into Honor by you know having that connection as a wholesale customer. It wasn't his cafe; it was someone else's. He was studying there as well. Um, but then I, I remember kind of going to Sydney with um, with Sam, Sash, and um, Angus Mackey, and yeah, we kind of piled in the car and all of a sudden there was this guy and I'm like, oh, that's the barista from 
from uni. That's strange. And, mm. and we drove over to Sydney into this, I think it was like a pure latte art comp or some sort, some little, it was like, um, it wasn't at the Fine Food Expo, it was some other expo, but we did this comp and Hugh and I both competed in it. And I didn't actually know his name at the time. So he just said, I'm Kelly. And I was like, oh, that's a strange name. Um, but yeah, I ended up coming last and doing really terribly. He ended up winning. And we were like, oh, this guy's actually, yeah, he's got a bit of talent there. So, and it's, yeah, I don't know. It's, so it's strange. It's like seeing the evolution of these people. I think for someone, you know, such as the best example is that people were just, you know, in awe of him a lot of the time. So, oh, this is world champion. He's done all these things. And, you know, I, I still, he's like, you know, a really dear friend. As, as a and, and a world-class Kelly. bloke too. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're all world-class blokes. These these people are not just my workmates. They're my closest friends. Yep. And so working with them every day is just working with my friends. So if you if I had to describe what working with these people is like, it's like I get to hang out with my friends all the time. And, and they I just think... happen to be obsessed with, you know, creating excellent flavor and just and, and doing great things. And I'm, I'm really fortunate in that way. As are a lot of people with other businesses, you know, there's incredible people in every facet of the industry in different companies. So. Well, I yeah. guess to paint a picture for people who might be, I don't know, living uh, overseas and listening to this, there's Canberra is the capital of Australia and it's a fraction of the size of, say, Sydney or Melbourne. And there's just been this coffee company owner that's sprouted in the middle of all this, just humble little Canberra. And, you know, you've got such, I don't know, you've got a clash of the titans in terms of talent and personality there that have just really built this this company that's it's changed coffee throughout the world and i feel like that's an interesting little story yourself and it's 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 uh it's sprouted from the beginning like you've all stuck together and grown together and it's not like you've imported all this all these talented people from other companies you know it's homegrown and it's impressive to see and, and, to, and to watch to continue it grow yeah i mean there's certainly people who have come into state over the years to work with us of course um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that didn't come to kind of, you know, later on, I guess, you know, in the, in the last couple of years. And you talk about Canberra and it's it being a fraction of the size of other cities. And I guess, you know, this is something that is mentioned a lot about kind of honour its association to Canberra. They, they kind of go hand in hand, but I guess it's, it's not the size, it's, it's what you do with it. Yeah. <laughs> and the same with it. Wow. And, and the same, yeah, yeah, I said that. Um, and yeah, it's the same with honour. Honour's by no means a very big business, but it's the, it's the I guess, the scale of, of what you want to achieve is not measured in, in kilos yeah. or how many cafes you sell to or whatever. It's, um, I guess, just the, the value of what you're doing and how important it is and what difference you can make. And I think that the Canberrans um, say what you will about the city. Um, uh, you know, I've grown up here, so I, I love the place. Oh, it's, I love Canberra too. It's, I'm, yeah, a, I'm a politics like, nerd, so I, I'm a, I, I love Canberra. You know, it's funny that no one, no one here is. So yeah. <laughs> it's funny that you say that. No one really, uh, a lot of people don't care that much to care for it. Um, but I kind of got off track there. Um, I, I think that yeah, Canberrans in particular are very, are very loyal. They're very proud, and they they won't turn their nose up at something that isn't from from Canberra. But you know, Honor in particular, and other businesses that are kind of homegrown here have, have become renowned across the country or the world. They're very proud of it, and they'll they'll you know go out of their way to buy a bag of coffee when they travel and to say to take to their friends and family and say. Oh, cool! Yeah, you live in Melbourne or Sydney. This is from Canberra. It's really good. Uh, you should go looking for it. And a lot of people, we get a lot of messages from Canberrans who have moved into state or overseas, kind of saying, "How can I get this coffee? I still want it. Right. I haven't found anything that I like as much." So, yeah, it's been it's in a, in a lot of ways I attribute the the success of Honor not only to the people within it, but to the in, environment that has cultivated that growth 
and, and the that quality. City of Canberra. Yeah, I, th- I think in not having there's, there's certainly other coffee companies here, and there's you know some of them are doing an incredible job, but I think that also not having not being lost in a sea of other companies has been great. It's kind of it was able to develop independently, form its own ideas, yeah. um, and and kind of come the company that it is now. And there, there hasn't had to be, yeah, we haven't had to compromise a lot of values in that way to to challenge or compete with other people. So that's that's been really good. Well, let's let's go next to to 2015. So Sasha Sestig's obviously he's competing in the World Brista Championship, and um, he's developed with a winemaker. Well, he's applied winemaking techniques, I should say, to to coffee with carbonic maceration, and you know he won the World Brewster Championship with using that process, and it's it's blown up a lot since then. And I think it's obviously when you think carbonically macerated coffee, you certainly think owner coffee because Sasha Sestic obviously popularized it. What's been the what what's been what's it been like to sort of have those innovations and I know you've been to Ethiopia and you've probably seen a lot of that but just describe to me the feeling of seeing the carbonic maceration process grow and I guess could you also explain to anyone who might be listening that hasn't drunk coffee before or don't know what carbonic maceration is could you just explain a little bit of that to me I guess the the most simplified version I can I can give of it is it's a an intentional experimental process that's designed to kind of heighten the sweetness, uh, intensify flavor and make higher quality acidity. So the process in winemaking is taking grapes and placing them into tanks and to uh, put them in an anaerobic environment. So basically taking the oxygen out um, and then the carbonic environment is when you put CO2 in. So mm-hmm. coffee as a fruit will ferment over time. Um, you can get to a point where it's fermented too much and you're getting, you know, qualities that you don't like um, but the carbonic maceration and this technique that Sasha borrowed to apply to coffee in 2015 for his world championship was designed to intensify the flavors the, the natural flavors mind you of the coffee already so the Sedan Rume that he used already had these uh, beautiful fruit qualities yep. that's you know great acidity but he was like you know what what can we do to intensify this or make this more clear so this process has been really innovative in that sense it's not having to I guess, add additional things to it. I hear all these things all the time of people putting watermelon into tanks or putting cinnamon in barrels and doing all these things. So mm. it's not that you're actually, I guess, paying respect to the country in which the coffee is grown, uh, the varietal that's growing and everything else that's been done to it. You're just kind of pushing the percentage up on everything that it has to offer. And yeah. so what what I've seen, I guess, in, in my role and my exposure to Honor Coffee and, uh, and Project Origin, which I guess we can address in a minute, is just seeing how this technique it started is like oh this is a really cool thing that we can do to this coffee and it wasn't just sasha that kind of you know visited this winemaker uh, tim kirk and was like oh cool i'm going to take that thanks it was very very much collaborative and then the you know the farm that sasha was working with um, las nubes um when he actually went to them they were already kind of thinking along the same lines so you know, like, like a lot of great inventions or techniques, more than one person was thinking at a time. It's just kind of who can get it into the public sphere first. Yep. And in, in no way, I think, as, as Honor or Sasha tried to be like, oh, this is our thing. But definitely not. And people all over the world are using it now. And that's the beauty of it, is seeing that people are taking an idea or a technique and using it to improve the quality of coffee worldwide. I so guess- that's the kind of, that's the most important part for me, is seeing not only 
you know, our success and like our coffees tasting really great or seeing what we can do with them. It's kind of giving that to the world and saying, do what you will with this. So let's make coffee better. Let's make it better in Ethiopia, in Panama, in Thailand, wherever. And I guess that's a probably a good segue to to talk about the um, the from what I gather from and I'm referencing John Gordon's um, routine in 2018 here. It's not overly uh, that there aren't there aren't as big a barriers as you would think to producing this coffee as as because now you're doing it in Kenya, you're doing it in Ethiopia, uh, Colombia, El Salvador. Um, who knows who else, where else? I'm sure you do, but is it is it is it something that you're able to take to a country, take to producers, and 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 it's not you don't have to have a huge amount of capital equipment to execute. There obviously would be some, but it's not um, prohibitively expensive. Um, what's that been like at Origin, and and how have you been able to sort of and if you explain as best you can how you've been able to to spread it to permeate it across coffee producing countries. Right. Well, I think there's a, there's a few layers to this. Um, and firstly, my, my exposure to you know this this experimental processing firsthand is is relatively limited. You know, I, as you mentioned, I've been to Ethiopia and I've seen kind of the you know the tanks and the setups and what they do. I understand the basic theory and have kind of seen a few you know different techniques that have been used. So seeing seeing it applied there is like okay, yeah, the, these materials, this technology, this is this is what's required to get that that basic structure. Um, in not just working for Honor Coffee in the past few years, until recently, I was also doing the same role for Project Origin, which uh, I mentioned before. So that started as a, a wing of Honor Coffee mm-hmm. and then it's just broken off and become its own company. So they supply all the green beans for Honor and they supply you know, to countless different businesses around the world now. So they are kind of the, the pioneers of this process at the moment. And that's you know one of Sasha's, that's his company too. So he's kind of at the forefront of that. And this is where the experimentation and, and this stuff happens. Uh, in, in communicating with Habib, who's the, the general manager of Project Origin, and having these same conversations, it's it's always astounding, I guess, the layers of complexity and the conscientiousness you need in doing things like this. Strolling onto a farm where you don't know someone or you might know their exporter and saying, oh, hey, here's some tanks. Pick this, do this, do that. It, it doesn't function like that. Yeah. Well, it very, very rarely does. It's like it's hard enough. Um, I, I heard a really good um, podcast from uh, Henry Wilson, who's the, the founder and CEO of Perfect Daily Grind. He was talking, I can't quite remember which one it was, sorry, but he was talking about, you know, going into a farm and creating relationships and, and saying to someone, oh, you know, can you only pick the red cherries? Unless you kind of incentivize that, these people who are picking might not know why, you know, they're like, why, do you, why should we do that? Because, you know, that, that means we have to work you know, an extra an extra week, we have to come back, oh, that one's not ripe yet, we'll have to come back next week and get it, as opposed to just picking everything at once. Uh, yeah. So the same thing kind of applies when you're looking at doing this experimental processing. You're like, hey, we're going to give you a bunch of these tanks. Um, we're going to give you this and that, and we want you to do this. They're going to be like, oh, okay, what's the purpose of this? And we'll say, oh, to make coffee taste better. And for them, you know, a lot of, a lot of work on coffee farms around the world, and this might be a bit of a contentious thing to say, is not, not driven by flavor. It's driven by sales, and it's it's really special when you encounter a producer who is like, yeah, I want to make, you know, this specialty incredible coffee, the best tasting thing in the world, and I'll do whatever I can to get there. Because often they're incurring a loss over years, mm. so in order to just do that, and that's really scary for people in producing countries. Uh, there's some people who have the means to do it, some people who get support, but a lot of the time, 
it's not an investment people are willing to make or you know or i don't have the capability rather to make yep. so seeing the, this experimentation and practice it's been a combination of years of building relationships and then kind of going in there and saying oh you know can we do some selective cherry picking um you know we'll incentivize that we want to pay you you know for half of next year's harvest in advance because we we, we want to guarantee that we're not just going to say oh thanks for the cherries and then piss off yeah um and we've seen i won't mention where but there's you know people who have actually gone and, and done this, this processing with you've had someone else turn up halfway through the harvest and say hey i'll give you you know a hundred thousand dollars to tell me exactly what you're doing with those tanks and that is a lot of money yeah. to the to the to, to producers and so what what's going to stop them from saying yes other than this relationship that you've built uh, if they say yes you're there, they're like, cool, I'm doing this, 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 is. here's the technology, here's the technique. You can guarantee they will never see that person ever again. Um, and, and that's not the point, I think, of, of increasing the quality of coffee worldwide and, and, and specialty in that relationship aspect. Is you want to have this ongoing thing that is mutually beneficial on both ends. You don't want to take advantage of people and, and put technology in place which they don't see to be beneficial because then it just it won't work out. And practically, how does it, in in if in, in the context of owner coffee, using this CM the CM process, carbonic maceration, taking it to Ethiopia or whatever country and building the relationships, what are the what are the tangible benefits? What have been the tangible benefits? You know, you you've just said that, of course, that you're paying for half the half of the harvest for in advance uh, for the for the for the preceding year, but what what you change? What I'm trying where I'm getting at with this is. You're changing lives. How are you doing it? Yeah, well, I mean, the example that I give of paying a harvest in advance is um, not always the case. Like, that's very special circumstances. But um, so through like, Project Origin, again, a great example. So what that was started through a, a relationship in India that Sasha was building. There was a, a gentleman who lives in Canberra who came to the roastery and said, I've got beans, green beans. Do you want to try them? My family has a farm in India. And Sasha kind of tried it and said, oh, you know what, this, this, this is, it's not incredible, but it has potential. I'd love to go to the farm. So he goes to India, meets this community and like sees all the farms and stuff. And then sees the, the conditions there. And, it, you know, it wasn't the worst place in the world, but he was like, oh, you know, they don't have some basic facilities or things that we would consider to be basic. Um, so he was like, you know, instead of saying, oh, you know, here's $50,000, $100,000 for, you know, this year's harvest and next year's, it's like, you know, what do you actually need? And they ended up building some sanitation blocks there and like a childcare center for the kids there. Um, and then since then, like, you know, helping to put up electric fences to stop wild animals in the area because there's elephants and there's, you know, leopards and Incredible. all sorts of crazy things in this yeah. farm. So, and, that, and that's the thing is that you're saying to people, walking into the, their, their space, mind you, that's the thing is it's their home and their space. You're a guest. So you walk in there and you say, I want to build this relationship with you. What, what can I do? What do you need? And for some people, it's just like, yeah, cool. I want some money. Um, you know, I, I want to guarantee that we have a partnership. I want some some longevity in this relationship. And other people go, oh, well, you know, I really, really need a tractor. Can you can you help me with that? And the most recent thing um, in that Project Origin has helped build um, is drying beds in in Ethiopia and a, a well. It helped to dig a well, and they actually did that on behalf of Honor Coffee and other customers in lieu of giving Christmas presents for last year. So they were like, we don't want to send you 
spend a few hundred bucks to give you a, a nice box worth of these things. We want to build something lasting. So now if you go to this farm in Ethiopia, you're going to see eight or nine drying beds, each with a different sign on it from a different coffee company who has this relationship with this farm now. And for the people who are living there, they, they say, oh, look, cool, we've got this thing because of these people. So yeah. it's, it, yeah, I guess it's a bit more like longevity and substance to a relationship is what's important. And that's, I guess that's what keeps coffee going in that way. You can't take advantage of people and you can't have these short-term relationships. It's not sustainable. Well, this is probably a good time to feed into sort of the focal point of, you know, why we're having this podcast because the title is Coffee and Communication. What, I, I, a lot of coffee is explaining the story of it. There's a lot of storytelling in coffee because those beans go through incredible journeys and and you you obviously feel very passionate about the communication side of it and and not so much educating the customer but making them aware of, of the journey of of where this coffee has come from and there's this and when we're at what are you wanting to add to the nexus of 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 customers and coffee producers you know what what is the middle point and where does owner coffee come into that and where yeah your your observations on that well, I guess before I answer, um, I, I kind of want to throw it back at you. Sorry. Go on. Um, so w- when you go into a cafe and you say you're going to buy some retail coffee, what do you want on, on a bag of coffee or what information are you looking for as someone who works in the industry? Well, for, for me, any coffee. For me personally, I'm always interested in varieties uh, because for that's, that's one, that's simply one, but because I like tasting the differences between different varieties of coffees because there's lots of different strains. And then too, um, yeah, I really like knowing geographically speaking where it's come from. I like seeing on a map or, and even down to the region, because of course I think coffee is going in a direction where we're able to sort of, um, you're able to taste a coffee and, and we're getting to a stage where soon you'll be able to tell which region it's from. So I guess I really like knowing the region and, and, and the, the variety and the story behind the processing as well, if, if that answers the question. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I just wanted to kind of, I guess, use it as an experiment to see where you sit as someone who's a, you know, a coffee professional. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, so I guess I don't have any groundbreaking observations to make about um, communication and coffee. It's just more, I guess, the different boxes you have to tick. And then this is part of my everyday experience in, in my work is that I see there being such a wide range of people who are consuming this coffee and who are reading about it and, and doing all these things. And it's really difficult sometimes to satisfy everyone. Yeah. So, you know, I've, I always try and think of three different people in my mind. I've got the, the customer. I've got, you know, someone like my mum who likes coffee. She knows that she likes this blend. She doesn't know why. Uh, her looking for a new bag of coffee and just picking one up and being like, oh, uh, yep, chocolatey, smooth, cool, that's me. Oh, that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she's not she's not concerned about varietal because she doesn't know the difference, or you know she ha- hasn't got hasn't got there yet, um, and she's just looking for something that was you know good enough or is reliable. Uh, the next customer is a wholesale customer, someone who is like, you need to give them everything possible in a really condensed and easy to interpret format so that they can then translate that. If you give them you know five A four pages worth of information about every single producer every single lot and every and everything you've done to it then i didn't see that as completely effective communication i see it as being overwhelming and mm. when you've got something like you know at the moment we have 10 single origins always 
um, four blends and then whatever else, you know, special releases that are coming out. So when you've got that many coffees floating around in these cafes, you can't possibly, as a barista who's, you know, getting up at six in the morning or earlier to get into a cafe, read all this information. And effectively, when a customer comes in in that 30 seconds that you've got to talk to them and say, hey, try this blend or try this one, you can't give them this whole spiel about, oh, yeah, this is grown by uh, Jose Amario Quintero and, and at this altitude. Mm. Sometimes you have the opportunity to, uh, and sometimes you don't. And then I guess the third customer that I see is the avid barista. And I guess my exposure to this, having not working at cafes for several years alongside these people is being from a wholesale, wholesale perspective. So particularly our baristas and the, the honor shops, they're always looking for more. You will give them every single detail you have on every single lot of coffee yeah. and they'll come back and be like, yeah, but what about this? GR is the drying, is the altitude of the drying beds, is that higher or lower than where it's grown? Or how many days was it in transport while it was traveling on a ship? Or how many times has it been QC'd? Or, you know, do they do, how many harvests they do a year? All these things that like you might not have at your fingertips, but then you're like, well, if it's going to heighten their experience and, and the way that they're going to communicate to their customers potentially. So you have to give them all that as well. So how do you satisfy each of these three customers while not overwhelming or disappointing all of them? And I had, I had the experience recently, the last time I went down to Melbourne, that I walked into a place that I, I really love. I won't say where, but it was this, you know, a great specialty coffee place, great for breakfast. And I picked up uh, a bag of coffee and I was like, oh, yeah, I wanted to buy a whole a few bags to bring home. I picked up this bag and I just said, you know, the, the whatever blend. And that was it. I couldn't even tell what roast it was. I couldn't see anything on the back or front. It was just like a colored bag with the name of the blend. Yeah. And I tried to ask someone about it and they were just like, oh, yeah, like it tastes like this. I'm like, okay, cool. Well, I, you know, that's so me as someone who is in specialty coffee, I'm dissatisfied with the level of information that I have. And that's probably a good, so, that's probably a good uh, point to sort of bring up that there's, there's as baristas in some companies or in some cafes, there is only so much information that you're given. And though you may be wanting more, sometimes, uh, yeah, extraordinarily in the, extraordinarily in the industry, sometimes you don't know the full story of the product that you're working with. And it's not necessarily barista's fault. And I feel like that could be a point where some customers leave disappointed. Oh, well, you know, he made it well, but you know, the context, the story behind it was lost. Yeah. And I think it's only in unique scenarios, perhaps somewhere like, you know, Sub-Zero pop-ups and on a shop or somewhere else that's, you know, that, that high level specialty where someone will come in and be and, and quiz you and say, okay, you know, what varietal is this? What altitude was it grown? And, you know, what's the name of the farmer? Or what's, the, what's the breed of his dog? There's, you know, very few people that will go to that level of, um, of detail. Yeah. But, you know, just that experience alone, I was like, you know, if I had walked in as just a customer who didn't know anything and I said, oh, cool, I like the blend name, the bag looks cool. And they told me it tastes like chocolate. And that's kind of enough for me. Um, but for anyone else who wants a little bit more, that was really dissatisfying. So I, I try and think about this in my, my own work in the way that I communicate it. Uh, it's not that I know the best way, but it's how how do I keep everyone happy? And how do I keep everyone knowledgeable? And how do we get encourage more knowledge? How do we encourage more people to look into it more? Because if we get every single customer interested in every detail, oh, by all means, I'll put everything out there, everything for everyone to read. But you know, you can't, I can't break down all this information into three or four categories every single every single week. It's too much. Is there any information about that that you might get 
at some stages, uh, you know, when you're buying coffee, you're going out and you're enjoying it. Is there anything that you think, is there any information that you think perhaps it perhaps is a bit irrelevant? When you, when like, do you ever hear something when you're getting a coffee and you think, oh, yeah, it's not enhancing the experience. Like, uh, I'll I'll give you an example. You know, someone tells you the altitude in which this coffee was grown. Did, is there anything like that that you think, oh, don't really need to know that or information overload or? I think if it was like a, a verbal thing, then I might be like, okay, cool, that's pretty it's you know i wouldn't say it's weird or it's irrelevant for, for my experience as someone who, who was dining in the cafe um but for someone else they might be like what what on earth are you talking about mm. um and it might seem a little bit over the top and i think that's where that reputation in, in specialty coffee as being wanky or something like that um that's kind of where it starts to get a little bit the lines get blurry as to whether you're, you're communicating effectively mm. having a lot of knowledge to communicate does not mean you're communicating effectively Yep. So if, if someone walks in and says like, oh, I want, you know, I, I want a coffee, give me a flat white and say, oh, we've actually got these blends and they go, oh, well, I don't know. You go, cool. Well, this one tastes like this because of this, this one tastes like this, um, you know, or what do you like? Oh, cool. You like caramel flavors. This one's got this for this reason. And if, and then if that, if that encourages further conversation, then you can certainly be like, oh, cool. Well, actually this blend has three components to it. And that caramel that you're tasting comes from this one. And so, and you, you don't always get an opportunity to do that, Yeah. but it's when you, it's when you have a regular customer who's coming in every day who wants to learn more. And I, I've had that experience working in that first honor shop, the blends that we have now, you know, the, sorry, the blends that we had then are nowhere near what we had now in terms of quality, but they certainly were distinct in their, in their flavor profile. So uh, there was a gentleman called Mark who worked at the bottle shop around the corner, he used to come in and get a, you know, 16 ounce hot flat white with four sugars every morning. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, eventually we said, Mark, you know, this isn't good enough. Uh, we're going to drop you down to, you know, we're going to drop you down two sugars. And we're like, well, we'll give you a free copy a week. If you you do docked him two sugars. Well, yeah, he wanted, he wanted four. But yeah, we docked him two. We docked him, well, you know, he was, you know, it's, it's been unhealthy. Come on. Yeah. But, no, but we, say, we said to him, we didn't say like, oh, you know, you're being, um, you're going to be diabetic or like you're an idiot mm. or like you're making our coffee taste bad. We just said like, oh, we actually, you know, we've got this new blend and we want you to taste it. Um, but the sugar is going to mask it. So we'll dock two sugars and in exchange, we'll give you a free coffee every Friday. So he was like, yeah, cool, whatever. Um, and the same, the same kind of thing happened. And every day he wanted to come in and have a chat because he worked around the corner and this was kind of his five minutes away from the shop. Uh, so little by little was kind of dropped down to one sugar, then to no sugar. And then from a 16 ounce down to a six ounce, then he was coming in and being like, you know, what single origins are on today? Should I have a milk? Should I have a filter? Should I have this? And this is over the space of probably eight of nine eight or nine months and so and, and a lot of people are you know we're not working in the cafe for four months we're there for years mm. a year a year or longer so we do establish these relationships with these with these regulars so we have the ability to do that so and this is what i mean with effective communication is that you don't have to give everything all at once perhaps that person's only coming in one time because they're a tourist or whatever um, give them the best that you can doesn't mean you have to give them the most that you can and if they ask for more, then you have the means to give them more because you have that knowledge. And this is probably a, a good time to explain to people that Owner Coffee literally has a blend called Raspberry Candy and, and it's based off Sashu Sestik's uh, World Brewster Championship winning um, routine in which he, his milk-based coffee that he served was, he gave a flavor descriptor of Raspberry Candy. And since since then, you've come out with a few new blends and it literally says on the packet, the coffee is named 
Um, you know, you've got one out right now called Chocbanoffee Pie, another one called Cherry Pie, one that you had it back in spring that tasted like violets and blueberries. And um, I guess it's interesting for me, and that's that's probably people would taste a coffee like that, and and they are special coffees. They taste a lot different to a normal blend that you'll get uh, at a standard cafe, really anywhere. But imagine uh, I'll put you in the position, Jordan, the hypothetical situation. You're a customer. You've not really, you know, you, you go to a cafe, you have a flat white, you go to own a coffee, you have a raspberry candy, and with it, you, unknowingly you just see it on the menu. It costs an extra dollar, and you think, yeah, bugger it, I'll try it. You drink it. It tastes super sweet like raspberry candy, which it does. That is probably a point where, you know, this this whole topic of coffee and communication comes in. Is that probably a journey starter that you see a lot at your venues? Yeah, I think the, the raspberry candy in particular, I mean, the, the price point of it, it is more premium blends. There is an, an extra cost associated to it. Um, people are quite, you know, they get over that hurdle quite easily. They'll happily pay an extra dollar to taste that thing on the menu that says, oh, raspberry candy. Oh, that's weird. Mm. I want to try that. Um, but yeah, what, you, what you've identified with, I guess, these, these blends that we're doing now and that raspberry candy blend is, I guess, a, a push more towards that, I guess, directness um, of, of, of flavor. And the best thing that has come out of these blends and the raspberry candy in particular is when anyone who doesn't know anything about coffee tasting goes, oh, it does taste like raspberry candy. So you talk about, like, you know, you just made a reference to a normal blend or a stock standard blend, whatever that tastes like chocolate. If you call that blend, you know, the, a chocolate malt milkshake, or whatever you want to call it, and then someone drinks it, and they go, oh, it does taste like that. Yeah. Then that is the first step towards educating someone further. And they're going to come in next time and be like, oh, I had that blend that tasted like a chocolate milkshake. That was so good. And you'd be like, oh, hold your horses. We've got one. We've got a, uh, an espresso today that tastes like blueberries. Do you want to try that? And mm-hmm. they're like, oh, sure, why not? They'll, you know, It made sense last time. It'll make sense this time. Um, so I think, yeah, that's kind of where I want to push more of our coffees because we do have other house blends. Raspberry candy is just one of them. And the other ones don't quite have that flavor association to the name, but that's something you're looking to change in the next few months. But all the special releases, as you said, uh, they've come out in the last six months, have all had this kind of you know, flavor association in their name, which makes it easier for everyone. And, and as well as visuals, putting mm. you know, the chocolate off your pie, we put a, we put a, a banana well, and that, a chocolate that's bar something I was on the, just on the going, front of the bag. That was something I was going to bring up because they look, the designs are fantastic. And you, uh, when I'm at the, when I was at the store, I bought some of the chocolate off your pie the other day. I was just, I don't know, I, I probably broke the speed limit driving home to go home and drink it because I was just so excited. But um, yeah, the the visualization of the coffee, um, obviously it, it, it's taken a lot of imagination on the part of owner coffee and project origin or, or whoever's developed this and full credit to you guys. Um, I, I've really loved the visualization on the packet and then going home and, and enjoying those flavors. It's incredible. Yeah. And, and it's certainly, it's not the, you know, it, it's working for us. It's not to say it's the best or only way to do it. I've seen just, you know, p- packaging is kind of the big focus at the moment uh, for me and for our designer, Vidi. And Vidi's the, um, Vidi Diana, she's the, the genius behind all the designs at the moment. Every single copy that you see, all the beautiful imagery and, and artwork and everything, that's all her. So full credit to her for that. Um, but yeah, certainly I've seen, I've gone to other businesses and companies and seen, you know, it hasn't got a banana and chocolate bar on it, but it just looks slick. It just looks amazing. It makes me want to take it home. Yeah. So that, that, and that's the power of that, you know, that visual aspect of coffee as well. It's not just about the flavor. It's not just about the the story and what you hear. It's about what you see and how you can make it your own. 
because you you might you might see a bag that you know is really like oh that looks really cool I want that on my shelf not that oh the barista told me that was good it's like you know I I came to this conclusion by myself I saw I see that flavor and I see that that image and I want that and, and and then again like as we just spoke about when you well hopefully you don't speed home like you did don't condone that but you know when you get home and and taste it then you go oh cool it does taste like that or yeah that that awesome bag that I picked up it, it was really satisfying. So, I mean, there's so many layers to how you, you can communicate coffee and how and it's about inviting people in to it as well, not just telling them, but giving it to them. It's inviting them in to have their own experience. Speaking of inviting people in, um, my, a, a really fantastic coffee experience of mine was uh, I went to Bolivia and Brazil a few years ago and went and bought competition coffee of my own. Um, on the way back, I went, to on on the way back from Bolivia, we went, went to Brazil, where uh, Heath Dalziel competed in the uh, World Brewers Cup Championship. And on my way back, uh, I'm I'm from Sydney originally, so on my way back from the trip it was a big trip. I got to cup and try a lot of delicious coffee in Brazil. Um, and on my way back, I actually flew into Sydney because I was going to visit some family. But I I just couldn't I just couldn't get the thought out of my mind that on. On the way back, my flight going in at 9am, I was going to your store in Marrickville. And mm-hmm. for anyone that hasn't been there or wants to go, it's in, it's an incredible store and, and, and probably a, a f- the first of its kind in, in, in some ways because the layout of the whole thing is conducive to be able to not only deliver amazing coffee, but a big part of it uh, for your company, as, as, as I understand was to deliver on the communication side of it as well and create a new experience. So, um, and, and it is, it's the best coffee shop I've ever been to hands down. And I've been to some lovely coffee shops around the world, but Marrickville, the, the Sydney store is, is numero uno. It's the best one. So, um, yeah, you must all be very, very proud of that store. And it's run by Isaac Kim, who's a fantastic guy. And his his deputy, Alex Murphy, very good friend of mine. Talk us through the store, the idea of the store before it opened and, and where it's come and evolved and, and, and impacted the business as a whole, if you could. I guess the, this, that store coming in, I guess we're losing my words, that, that store came about after a bit of a process with uh, other shops. So as I mentioned, there was the first Onomatica shop. Um, then when the roastery opened, there was a second cafe coffee house that was attached to that. And they were kind of, I guess, your stock standard cafes and the, the bar was set to one side. Here are the tables, here's the outdoor section and blah, blah, blah. Um, when the cupping room was opened, it was open as kind of like the dream shop. So, you know, on long car rides to and from the Gold Coast for and Sydney and Melbourne for Brewster Comp, because, you know, we do a lot of driving from Cambridge, all these comps, because no, no one wants to come here. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, so in all these conversations in the car, we're kind of like, this is the, this is the dream shop. This is what we want to build. So the cupping room was open as a space, you know, that as a camera's first specialty coffee venue that was all like really immersive and it opened with no flat whites, lattes and cappuccinos and just said, you know, we just do milk-based coffee. Um, this is the one format, pick a blend. Or well, if you want it black, you can do long black, short black. And so it was kind of open with it as this coffee um, Valhalla or whatever you want to call it. Um, and that, that did change over time because people were a bit weirded out when it opened and they weren't quite, you know, receptive to the the structure of the menu and the, how it operated. And there was a cupping table built into the middle of the cafe. Um, and that was, you know, the kind of dream would be have cupping sessions going all day. Uh, that didn't quite work out the way that we wanted because the place became this 
brunch powerhouse. Yeah. So, you know, we, we have to use that cupping table for, you know, people eating brunch all the time. Uh, that menu still exists, the coffee menu and structure. And that's, you know, we, we apply that to all our other stores. And that's our standard now. And a lot of people have followed suit or done similarly. And so when we opened up the, we're opening up the Sydney shop, it was like, you know, well, this is this was our dream in the past. We achieved that dream to an extent. What do we want to do now? And you mentioned communication. And, you know, this is something so dear to my heart. And I wasn't part of, you know, building a space physically, but I guess talking about it conceptually, we're like, we want somewhere where people are talking to the baristas because they're always hidden behind a machine. Mm. Uh, and they're the people who are more often than not, like, of course, floor staff, credit to them. No, probably more than, you know, anyone in, in the space where everything is, what's going on. They're brilliant. Um, but then, you know, for, in terms of coffee knowledge and, and communicating, I think baristas are a really great source and so passionate. So the space was open with this huge bar right down the middle and all the machines and grinders have been lowered into the bench so that you can have that communication over the machine, uh, over the filter bar, and it's all just one big shared space. So there's no separate tables in that sense. It's just one big long bar and your barista is directly in front of you, handing you your menu and making your coffee straight afterwards. So yeah, I, I guess it's, it's quite simple in that way. It's just, you know, let's just open up that channel of communication. It should be there. And basically, you know, everyone that works there is making coffee and, and making food and serving the till. Everyone's doing everything. So in that way, you're building everyone's skills. You're, you're keeping them all up to date with each other and keeping them on the same level. And the level of passion in the store is just, it astounds me. And when I talked before about, you know, versus wanting to have more information, it's generally this, this cafe that's kind of coming to me, other people and saying, what else have you got? What more can I know? What more can you give me? And they're, they're just on another level. And I'm, I'm so proud of what they've done. And that's that's the same kind of energy and passion that we are hoping to bring to our new venue, which is uh, opening in Melbourne. Yeah. Well, give us an update on that. How's that coming along? Yeah, it's good. Um, I mean, I guess Corona's knocked everyone a bit sideways. So yeah. just the goal with that. Um, so for anyone who's listening that doesn't know, we're, we're opening in Brunswick this year. So the, the open date was set around April and now it's kind of delayed and we're just, I guess, taking it day by day, seeing what happens. Um, so that's being headed up by Devin Long, who's the former Australian Brewers Cup champion or two-time Australian Brewers Cup champion. Also a legend of a guy. Uh, straight up legend. Uh, so he's managing the venue. Uh, Katie Reynolds, who's the general manager of all of our retail venues. So she's kind of, you know, spearheading that. Uh, and Tom, who's our general manager from wholesale, he's been a, a huge help in getting everything organized. So between the three of them and um, Jerome, who's uh, executive chef for all the venues, they're, they're getting this venue um, pretty much ready enough to scratch. But yeah, it's it's difficult at the moment because, you know, you want to open it, get really excited about it and share it with everyone, but it's, it's just not appropriate well, let's, with, you know, health and safety measures. So. Let's get into a bit of that. Um, it's been a hell of a year or a hell of a six months for Australia. And um, for anyone listening overseas, and I hope there's people listening from overseas, Australia is, um, is we experience long and sustained droughts um, in, in it's, it's cyclical. It happens every, every, every decade, I guess you could say. We had a really horrible one in the 2000s and now we've had a really, a really brutal one at the end of the 2010s leading up to 2020, which of course um, aided the, I guess, the uh, fuel um, for the terrible bushfires that we had here in, um, in, in, in late December, early January that really, uh, 
the, the sheer size of it, you know, there's there's been bushfires in Australia where more people have died, sure, but the the, the area that this covered and the ferocity of the fire that literally drove uh, forced people to run for their lives to a beach, and the flow on effect for that for Australia and was huge, and I guess you, it no more felt uh, by cities, I guess you could say, than Canberra. You literally had so much smoke in Canberra for such a long period of time that yet there were some days, as I understand, you had to close some shops. So could you ex- talk us through how you sort of adapted through, for, we'll, we'll get to coronavirus, but first the bushfires, because I feel like that's been forgotten a lot and the trauma has has not been forgotten and it, it's not just exclusive to the to the to the victims that were had their houses burned down but also you know having these huge plumes of smoke clouds just approaching the city i've seen photos it's it's horrifying what was that like um yeah i mean i just hearing this guy i've got goosebumps um i mean i had a really um really close call in uh, 2003 when there were bushfires in Canberra. my uh, family home nearly burned down yeah, and I, I can't even remember how old I was. I must have been twelve or thirteen, and getting evacuated and like chuck all the stuff you have in the back of a car or just one bag rather in the back of a car and drive off and there's flames behind your car. Like it's just, it's terrifying. And you know um, what? Funny you should say. I drove through that fire. My dad, we went and visited my family in Bendigo at the time, driving from Sydney, and we literally, you know, you're driving over a hill and you see a mountain on fire. It's horrifying. Yeah, and I, I remember playing on the street because um, my parents live in a cul-de-sac right next to the, like, you know, the edge of Canberra, so it's all just national park from there. And just, you know, yeah, it was just got kind of dark, and I was like, well, 3 p.m., this is so strange. And looking over the hill and seeing this line of fire and being like, oh, that's weird. Kind of getting my, my mum and being like, what's that? And she's like, oh, fuck. <laughs> you know, not good. Um, you can bleep that one out, sorry. And, yeah, yeah so in, in this experience um, – yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm kind of speechless. So I was actually in Bali at the time uh, with my with my fiance, and we we were on a holiday, and just as all you know, there were already bushfires because it's Australia and there's always somewhere on fire, but you know, it just really started to build up over New Year's, um, and then just seeing the severity and the, the the scale of it, I was checking the news every time we had Wi-Fi, just going, what's going on, what's going on, and we flew back in, and um, Hugh Kelly happened to be in Sydney. We landed back in Sydney, and he's like, I'll give you a lift down. Um, but the day that we landed, the highway was closed because it was, the fire was so bad on on, on the, the Monero Highway between Sydney and Canberra that they had closed it. And so we sat to sit in the Americville shop we were just talking about for about three hours, updating the highway thing to see if we could get back home. There's worse we, places what, you could be stuck in that situation, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, of course. I drank a lot of coffee that day. But yeah, then we were driving down. We happened just on a whim. We were like, you know what? Let's go buy some face masks just in case. Uh, and there's a hardware store up the road. So we just like, you know, ran in, got a packet. And people people were already going nuts in Sydney for them because there's already fires in the Blue Mountains. So we were lucky to get a packet as we were driving down. For most of this three-hour trip, we couldn't see more than 50 metres ahead of us. That's it crazy. was horrible. And, you know, we had closed the kind of air conditioning, so it was just like cyclical within the car, cycling within the car. And, you know, we were just choking for hours. And then that was that was the next month for us. Mm. Um, and my, yeah, my chance is German and she had only moved to Australia in, in October. And so the, her experience of Australia for the most part has just been natural disasters and, and pandemics. Yeah. So, you know, we, 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 couldn't leave the house. Um, and as you mentioned, like the businesses, uh, were closed for, you know, every second day, the smoke alarms are going off or 
they would say, yeah, we had all these um, air mon the monitors reading the air quality in the cafes and, and in, the, in the office as well. And we had air purifiers. And if it got you know, to a certain level, we weren't allowed to be in the office or you know, everyone had to wear a mask at all times. We were just, you know, absolute crisis control. And then I was, I was going to, um, to Melbourne on, on this trip that I just spoke about before where I, I, felt I was disappointed by We, that, we were going to catch up. We were going to catch we up, were, I remember. We were, we were going to catch up. I was coming down to hang out with you, hang out with a few, few people. And then I went to the airport and then all of a sudden planes stopped landing because Canberra's no big airport and there's not a lot of planes that just idle there. And so it's, it's very strange to, it's not strange to not see a plane there, but, you know, one turns up every 10 minutes and no planes are landing. All of a sudden, all the incoming planes cancel, cancel, canceled. And we're like, what is going on? And we had noticed on the way in that, you know, police motorbikes were starting to, you know, go across the road. Uh, near the airport, well, what's going on there? You know, no idea. It turns out there was a fire on either side of the airport that we just didn't see. And so <laughs> we're standing there as this beautiful new airport. We're standing at this big glass wall looking down and we just see these huge flames at the end of the runway. And then, you know, we want to leave the building, but like, you can't leave because across the road, across from the front doors, there's another fire. Oh, so we're trapped in this building and then, you know, all in all inbound and outbound flights get cancelled. And so then, yeah, it took about an hour and a half for a bus to get through to evacuate us um, out into the city. But then, you know, it just kind of snowballed from there. From there, um, Namaji, which is the uh, Namaji and Tupin Villa, which are the, the national parks south of the south in the southeast of the ACT, huge areas of land. Um, they went up about you know a week and a half, two weeks later, and it, it was just devastating. The whole the whole city was just completely covered in smoke. And yeah, so the quarantine that we're going through now, we already experienced that. For a few weeks, we were already inside, unable to open the windows, go outside, do anything. We couldn't go for a walk, couldn't go to the shops. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. A good third of this year has been spent cooped up in my apartment, just unable to go outside. It's probably a good time to start playing World of Warcraft again, or something like that. It was, yeah, a lot of inside time. But I guess this is a good, this is a good, uh, you know, opportunity to segue into what we're going through now. And I think, you know, from memory, your distribution network for coffee you know getting coffee to your customers was affected by the bushfires and obviously it is now and now there's a whole lot of of customers that probably aren't even open so you know i'm, I'm just going off a whim here but i'm, I'm imagining you've seen it uh, imagine you've seen a decrease in the amount of wholesale coffee being ordered um yeah like you know we've, how, how are you adjusting now to coronavirus and i know you've 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 sort of adjust you've made adjustments at all your stores and you've put in quite stringent uh measures to to sort of you know make sure that first and foremost your staff are safe i was just talking with alex the assistant manager um of marrickville last night on the phone and he, he sort of walked me through some of it but it, it if you could if you could explain that now um what have you been doing so for, I mean, I guess in the wholesale component you describe, of course, there's been a decrease. I think pretty much everyone has seen a pretty significant decrease in wholesale trade. Um, the reaction to that initially when this all kind of started happening was, you know, I'm quite close to the venues that we operate. Um, and Katie, the manages them all. Always, you know, she's the, the, the manager of the managers. She was the one that was kind of like, you know, predicting this, you know, we'll close on this day. This will happen. This will happen. We're like, no, of course not. Like it's going crazy in Spain. You know, Italy is under the pump. We'll be fine here. But then, lo and behold, four days later, we're in, we're in crisis mode. Mm. Um, so the, the reaction from the action, the, the cafes was quite good. They were like, yep, doing this, these measures in place. Um, you have to close. You know, we can't take people inside. We're going to do a takeaway window. Every venue adapted really quickly. 
in that way so they could keep trade going. Of course, there's less business. So, uh, you know, some staff were getting, you know, shifts cut or, you know, cut entirely. But now with JobKeeper, um, we were able to reintroduce them back into work, which is great. And, uh, and from the wholesale just, aspect. Just, just a quick one, Jordan. JobKeeper, for anyone that's um, tuning in, is, is the Australian government's subsidy for wages, which is allowing, you know, part-time and permanent workers to have the, the government will literally pay fifteen hundred dollars a fortnight for um for for companies to to keep employees on the books. So um and that's that it's a similar sort of strategy being adopted by Britain and, and Denmark. But yeah, JobKeeper is a wage subsidy that is is paying Australian businesses to to keep their employees on the books and 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 a very it's a good policy as well. Yeah, I mean, say what you will about you know various governments and what they do and how they spend their money. I think the reaction everything that's happened has been really great and the mm. prioritization of you know, people being able to have some income and to be safe that's that's the best part whether you're actually utilizing these staff or not they're still able to pay their rent and just uh, make it it's a reminder of how lucky we are to live in a country where we're able to do that and there's there's a lot of uh developed countries that can't facilitate that and um it's obviously going to be a big it's you know, it's going to be paid for. We've borrowed a lot of money to do it. It's a uh, 130 billion Australian dollar package. So it's huge. So, um, yeah, I mean, we won't get too stuck into that, but, um, yeah, look, drop a drop in the ocean really uh, long term. It's like, you know, if tens of thousands of people die like they, they are in the States, then that's when the trouble starts. Um, mm. but the, I guess, uh, yeah, bringing back to your, your earlier question, um, elaborate a bit further in the wholesale capacity. Um, it's been, a really interesting experience, but a really valuable one. So Sasha, you know, who's our founder and CEO, um, he you know, is still still the head of the business um, and still is working day to day with everyone, but also you know engages in his own projects and is kind of doing larger scale things. Um, but through this experience, he kind of stepped back in in a big way and was communicating with everyone, not just the people who work in the office and roastery, but to every single person, you know, kitchen staff, floor staff, bar, everyone who works in all the cafes. Sending out, he was sending out these private YouTube videos explaining exactly what's going on. He sent out three or four of them, being like, "This is what we're doing. This is the plan. Um, you know, it's a lot, it's a long-term plan." Blah blah blah. So, you know, they started reducing um, working times almost immediately, mm-hmm. and we were kind of, you know, me personally, I was like, "Oh crap!" Like, you know, I'm, I'm going to be working less than means less money. But then, you know, having them explain this and saying, "Well, no, this is the purpose of this is so that we can ride it out longer." You know, if 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 we're not allowed to serve. A single coffee or sell a single bag of coffee we can still ride this out for x amount of time so we're actually doing this so that the company survives so that your job survives and that's been really good and the the adjustment to the you know the new world order the you know whatever you want to call it I mean, you know, i've been working from home for oh, i think over five weeks now um you know, it would be yeah, six weeks and of course so you, I, I, you came back from germany and had to self-isolate in that time so um yeah so actually i came back this is before the self-isolation came into effect. I came back and was really sick. And this is before coronavirus was, you know, talked about globally. So it's kind of like, oh, there's this thing happening in China. Um, so I came back, was really sick, really hope I didn't have it. But then kind of, you know, I had to, I was home isolating. So I didn't make anyone else sick mm. from the, what I thought was the flu. And then, you know, I got better. And then the coronavirus stuff getting, started getting really serious in Germany. And my fiance was still there. And so we're like, you know, we're trying to contact the the airline that we booked the flight with. And we're like, can you move the flight? Can you move the flight? I'm getting no response because everyone's trying to do the same. So we just booked her a new ticket. Just got her back the next day. And the day that she arrived, they put in the isolation laws. And wow. so, you know, she she arrived and, 
you know, her workplace, um, which is one of the honor venues, she works as a barista there, was like, you know, we, we want you to do this isolation. Um, or, you know, alternatively, you can get a, a coronavirus test. And it's escalated. So I, it's escalated a lot since then, I should add. So the Australian government has implemented mandatory quarantining for anyone entering the country. So from now on, you don't even have a choice. From the airport, you go straight to a hotel that's paid for by the federal government and you stay there for two weeks. And, you know, they might not be the best conditions, but it's that's what they're doing now. And I guess it escalated so quickly from, you know, uh, I guess trusting people to self-isolate. Yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't mind that scenario if it included dry cleaning. You know, people are complaining about <laughs> staying in a hotel, but you know, if I managed to come back from overseas trip and got to stay in a hotel for a while, I wouldn't be too mad about it as long yeah. as I had clean clothes. Um, yeah, so it's been it's been a really interesting experience for us. Um, so you know, I've, with that additional isolation from when I was ill uh, up until now, it's um, yeah, it's been it's been a long time, but you know, adjusting to working from home and not seeing my friends every day at work and just having to text them or message them or I've done a few like, you know, Zoom social hangouts and stuff like that. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting, but it's I think that everything that's been done in Australia and in my experience from, from Honor Coffee has just been, you know, thinking about the longevity of these plans and, and trying to keep everyone as safe as possible. And I think that's really great. I, it's been wonderful to see how people have united and innovated for this. And there's so many positives that have come out of this um which is a really weird thing to say considering people are dying and mm. you know we're, we're we're locked away in our homes but there, there is so much to take out of this mm. and I, i'm looking forward to seeing what this will actually do for us for the future well there's a lot of inter- there's there's a lot of companies doing um a lot of things to combat the virus and i'm interviewing uh for the next podcast my old boss salvatore malatesta and i won't spoil the beans too much but um he he's made the pivot of all pivots, I, w- I would have to say with with um, with what he's doing, I, I won't I won't I won't spoil it for the next podcast. But that's something you should uh, you should definitely look forward to. Um, that it, yeah. there's some people doing some really incredible stuff, and not necessarily, you know, it's not all coffee either. Like they're just doing things to save jobs, which is incredible. Yeah, I mean, um, without yeah, as you say, spoiling your, your next episode, um, but you know, Salvatore and San Ali have done is really interesting. Um, other businesses have done really interesting. I mean, in our own venues, we set up online platforms quite quickly and started selling uh, produce, not in the interest of just saving our, our own business and trying to keep it afloat. But we had our suppliers being like, well, all the restaurants have closed. Yeah, Most of the cafes have closed. I've got, you know, 65 kilos of figs and all these avocados and all this stuff. What am I going to do with it? Mm. They kind of call us appealing to us as being like, you know, can you get rid of it somehow? So, you know, we start selling produce boxes and then you know the, the licenses for alcohol or the, the leniency on that recently so you know we'd be able to do home deliveries and do all these different things pretty much from from day one of the most severe restrictions so we've been really fortunate in that way and it's and it has been incredible to see how other businesses have adapted and what they're doing it's um it's a, a scary but a special time yeah and and um i feel like this this a reminder. This is a coffee podcast, and you know we, we're 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 encompassing all these issues. Um, but you know it's been we're, we're getting to the end of the uh, end of the a lot of time that I don't I don't want to steal too much of your time, Jordan. I know you've got your lovely fiance waiting there, so I, I want to finish the podcast asking this question, and I'm gonna I'm gonna ask for three answers here. Mm. What is the best coffee you've ever had? Espresso, milk, and filter. Oh, Lordy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you can only have one okay. for each. Yeah, geez. That's, Tough question, um, I know. 
Really tough one. Um, I think espresso wise, uh, there's two that stand out in my mind. So I hope I'm not cheating. So no, uh, the Finca Debra that uh, Kelly, Hugh Kelly served uh, when he was competing at the World Bristol Championships in Seoul in 2017, mm-hmm. um, semi-finals day. That was just phenomenal. Yep. Um, since then, I've tasted other things he's going to use or hopefully use for future competitions. Um, that's definitely up there as well. Uh, but the second would be um, a coffee that I've actually had two experiences of. So the the CM selections from Project Origin, which is their kind of uh, you know series of carbonic maceration coffees that are split into categories that are designated by gemstones. So one of these coffees was used by Agnieszka Rogesta to win the 2018 World Roaster Championship. Mm-hmm. So that was a coffee roasted by Ona Coffee. Um, so that was a really exceptional coffee on a cupping table you would be like that's nice but it's not it's not a screamer it's not you know exceptional uh, but sam our head roaster saw the potential in it and you know obviously did tremendously well mm. uh, but that same profile that same experiment and same lot from the same farm has been reproduced since each year and the lot that was produced this year was actually used by by my fiance and the other people in competitions and seeing that the same expression of that coffee but you know just i guess with a bit more finesse a few yep. years later, it's like tasting a WBC level espresso, but then, you know, it's matured, it's become better. And like, mind you, this is not the same year. This is, you know, two years on, two, three years on. Yep. Um, so, yeah, so Kelly's espresso and that um, Ethiopian diamond, uh, various codes over different years attributed to it, but um, that copy for espresso. Um, for filter, um, I would have to say, I've, I've been really lucky, mind you, in my, my coffee drinking because, yeah, I drink a lot of nice coffee all the time, but I have been able to travel to a lot of competitions. Um, so I'd probably say for filter that um, – so Sam, our head roaster, he, he won the Australian Brewers' Cup in 2017, a very good year for us. Mm-hmm. Um, he used the, our first whole cherry carbonic maceration, so whole cherries in the tanks rather than just the seeds. Um, our first whole cherry CM process that we had done, that was the coffee that he used uh, in Budapest, the World Brewers' Cup. And I remember it wasn't even the one that he served on stage. I came in early one morning when he was doing a practice run through and it was the day after his coffee had arrived. And rather than like, you know, let it rest for a little while, he was like, I just want to you know, hook into some of it. So I did a really small batch of it uh, and brewed it in a practice routine. And I, I, he was just screaming and running around the room and just jumping and just being the happiest person ever. Um, and I was just sitting there speechless. Just I'd never tasted anything like it. I've probably had coffees since that are, you know, uh, better quality because uh, Jamison, who produced the coffee, I think just gets better each year. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was, that was you know, people talk about the first aha moment in coffee, like, oh, wow, okay, I get it. Um, that was like a, a second wave for me. I've just been like, oh, my God, <laughs> this is this is beyond anything I, I've tried before. So that that's really memorable for me, that coffee. Um, and I'm missing one, milk, milk. Um, so I'll be honest, I don't actually drink milk. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm like, my, you know, vegan most of the time, bit of a flexitarian. Yep. Um, but in my, you know, flavor bank in my memory, um, I, I do occasionally kind of, you know, do a, a taste and spit. Um, in 2018, the coffee that John Gordon used for a milk base. Oh, that yes. was an, uh, again, yeah, again, another CM selections, uh, Jasper profile this that time. 
um, that was just exceptional. It was like rum raisin, um, like a bit of chocolate, and just yeah, it was very very special. I'm so and happy then, because uh, I've I've had all of those coffees except for maybe Nicole's um, WBCF uh, German Barista Championship coffee. I've had all of them, and they're so good. Oh well, mate, we, we've got very similar palates. Well, we've actually got some of that uh, that coffee in the freezer here. So when you come up to Canberra next, then uh, uh, you can have a little have a little taste. Mate, we, we bought a test freezer just for coffee, so you can you can jump in there. Oh jeez, I I definitely don't need any more. I've, I've got my my chest freezer is just absolutely stacked, and I just have to force myself. I've got my, my one of my housemates. I've had to I've had to tell him to not let me buy any more coffee because I just go nuts. Um, they're all no. I'll, I'll just I'll just send you some. I won't give you a choice. You gotta you gotta fit it in somewhere. I'll twist my arm, mate. Twist my. Arm. <laughs> I'll, <laughs> I'll take it. But one last question uh, before we sign off, mate. Mm-hmm. Um, the the Coffee Heroes film. Where are we at with that? When can we expect the release of the Coffee Heroes film? Because um, you're you're an assistant yeah. producer on that film, as I gather. Yeah, I, I don't really know how I got into that position, but I'm very grateful for it. Um, so the producer of the Coffee Man film and now this uh, second film, Coffee Heroes, um, has been produced by a very good friend, Jeff Hahn. And yeah, so I guess the, we were kind of um, waiting to see what was happening with like, you know, film festivals and uh, different coffee events and stuff. Obviously there's, um, you know, a few arrangements and, and talks about, you know, when and where it's released and um, premieres and stuff like that. That's all kind of, I guess, a, a bit of a pause. I don't want to speak on Jeff's behalf, um, but, you know, I, I know he has put so much into this film and, yeah, it's just, it's exceptional. From what I've seen of it, I haven't seen the whole thing yet. It's just exceptional mm-hmm. and it's just such a tearjerker. Um, I was so grateful to be a part of, you know, part of the filming for that um, and I can't wait to see it on the screen. But um, at the moment, I think it's just a, like everything else at the moment, it's a bit of a waiting game. We, yeah. you know, when will cafe, when will cafes reopen? When can I go to the beach? And, you know, when can I see the Coffee Heroes film? Lots of question marks, but um, we just have to be patient. Well, I guess um, one thing I'd I'd love to bring up is that I I live, my housemates, I've got three of them, um, and none of them really drank specialty coffee before I moved in. Obviously, they've got a really large amount of it uh, being continually fed to them now, but about a month ago, we all watched, they, they were asking me about coffee competitions, and I said, oh, it's kind of hard to explain, but I'll, let's watch a movie tonight. So we watched the coffee man and, um, and we loved it. And it was so, uh, it was so incredible that all the, I thought, you know, Oh geez, I'm, I hope these guys enjoy this because, you know, maybe it's just a coffee nerds thing, but it's a really comprehensible film. And if, it, if anyone is listening that hasn't watched it, I really encourage you to go watch it because it gives you a really good insight into, to own a coffee, the brand, the company behind Sasha Sestic. Behind barista competitions, it's a really great film, and I was watching um, a clip on YouTube uh, just earlier today about Sasha saying we need more coffee films because you know you, you see the wonderful things that uh, you know food shows and wine shows do for those in respective industries. It's fantastic that you're making um, that Jeff and and the guys at owner and yourself have made this this film, and I honestly just cannot wait to to watch it. Yeah, I mean, the only thing they'll give away about this film is that, you know, you say that the first one is about, you know, Sasha and, 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 comp- and on a coffee and competitions. Um, the second film is, I guess, less so about kind of those categories mm. um, and, and more about a few a few other stories. So, yeah, it's really, really special. Well, mate, I'll, uh, I really look forward to watching it. And, hey, thanks so much for coming on today. Um, is there anything you want to say before you go? 
Um, look, there's a million things I want to say because you know I love chatting to you. I could just you know chat to you all night. Um, yeah, I think it's really important to me and to a lot of other people. And I guess because you know we our, our main topic was coffee and communication. We've been off track a few a few times. Um, communicating something effectively and being passionate when you when you say it is so important because there are so many people along every step of the way in this chain who have done so much. So many producers, their families, you know, their their friends, uh, just countless amounts of people who have gone into making every single coffee that you drink. So, you know, communicating their their journey and everything respectfully and passionately is so important. You can't do it every time, but when you can, it's really important to make sure that you do it well. Yeah, very well said, mate. It's it, there's so many. You know, I could talk about this for a million years if you let me, but we, you know, we got to put an end to it at stop some point. But yeah, it's there. Like you said, there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of hands along the supply chain, and particularly at Origin, and and uh, and communication within the the framework of coffee is really important, so that we can do do that um, do those people justice because they're they're doing so much. They're doing most of the heavy lifting. So, but thanks for, so much for coming on today, mate, and uh, really appreciate it, and wish you all the best throughout, you know, this disaster that's unfolding, and and and. Um, and cannot wait to see the Coffee Man film and drink some more owner coffee. Oh, can't wait. Well, um, yeah, I'll, I'll keep some stuff in the freezer for you and can't wait to hear the other episodes of this podcast. And uh, yeah, look forward to seeing you. Thank you so much. Jordan Montgomery of Owner Coffee. Thank you.